Well, uh, <clears throat> thank you, Brother Mickey, and uh, good morning, everybody. It's a great privilege uh, for me to be here at <clears throat> Harvest New Beginnings. I've heard uh, so many good things about your church and uh, over the years, and uh, so it's been a real privilege when I was asked to come and speak. Uh, one of my <clears throat> joys is getting to reconnect with uh, George and Tanya Curry. They served for many years at Bethesda Baptist in uh, Brownsburg, Indiana, where uh, a lot of my service had been in this, that state, and just wonderful to reconnect with them and of course to reconnect with my uh, good friend Mickey and uh, he's been pursuing certification as a biblical counselor and I've had the privilege of being his uh, mentor and one of his supervisors and I want you to know as a congregation I think you're uniquely blessed to have a man who knows the word of God as well as he does and who lives out what he preaches and teaches to others in such a wonderful wonderful way and uh, so it's great for me to be able to to be here where, where he serves. And I want to just say a publicly a, a word to Bob and Nancy Buell. They have certainly represented your church well. They've handled my arrangements and coming here and setting up the books and so forth. And B uh, Bob's back there willing to receive your payment if you find something you want to buy. They just have done a tremendous job in caring for me, and I really appreciate that. And I want to just say a word about your <coughs> worship team this morning. I told them after the first service, uh, as I was enjoying their ministry, I thought, you know, if a guy can't preach after this, something is bad wrong with him. And uh, so uh, we'll see how I do. Hey, uh, just a, a word about some of the resources that are back there. Uh, in my introduction, um, Mickey mentioned several times that I have worked for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And probably when people hear, a lot of people hear that word, they think, well, I'm not a counselor. And I want to argue against that. The fact is, all of us are counselors. Some of us do it formally. All of us do it informally. And let me just see if I can prove that. How many of you are parents? Do you ever tell anybody how to think or act? Uh, how many of you are wives? Do you ever tell anybody how to think or act? Uh, how many of you happen to have a friend? I mean, do you ever tell them how to think or act? Well, the fact is, you know, we all give advice. Some of us do it formally. Some of us do it, all of us do it informally. And as biblical counselors, we believe that the Bible is a book of answers, not a book of questions. And it has answers for the common problems and struggles that we face in life. And there's literature back here that uh, helps us understand the scriptures and how to apply it to some of our circumstances. Let me just uh, point out uh, some that are back there that may be of interest to you. Children and divorce, helping when life interrupts, or healing after abortion, God's mercy is for you. Or here's a good one, motive, why do I do the things I do? Very, very helpful. One of my favorite books is this one, it's called A Quick Scripture Reference. This is one of four books, and it's arranged topically. You can just pick a topic, anger, fear, worry, depression, discouragement, sexual sin. I mean, just look at the table contents, and the, the topics are arranged, or the scriptures are arranged by topic. This is a tremendous resource for any Christian. The good news is there's one of these quick scripture reference for counseling women. There's another one, quick scripture reference for counseling men. And there's another one, quick scripture reference for counseling youth. And just look at the table contents at any of these, and you'll see what a valuable, uh, valuable resource it is. And then a uh, last one I draw your attention to. Here's a book that is really helping us. It's called Transforming Homosexuality. The subtitle is What the Bible Says About Sexual Orientation and Change. This is the hot issue in our culture, as you know. And uh, this is a short book that does a wonderful job in addressing this issue from a biblical perspective. <coughs> and I would... <clears throat> particularly draw your attention to chapter 3, which talks about the myth about homosexuality. 
like one myth is if you have uh, homosexual desires, you can't change. That's not true. That's a myth. But that's what we're being told. Another myth is if you try to help somebody change who has homosexual desires, you will hurt them. That's a myth. That's not true. And uh, the book addresses other myths from a biblical perspective. This is a tremendous, tremendous resource. And uh, one I hope you at least go by and take a look at. And there's a number of other uh, topics that are addressed with the literature that's back there. Well, I'm speaking to you today on the subject of how to gain and maintain a clear conscience. Or the title could be how to deal with what is in your hall of shame. The fact is all of us have a hall of shame. All of us have done things in the past for for which we have regrets, and a lot of us feel very, very guilty about it, and a lot of us keep the doors on our hall of shame locked shut, hoping that nobody ever finds out in another way what's in there. The fact is, though, all of us at one time or another have cheated on our exams, or we've lied on tax reports, or we've exaggerated on expense reports, we've stolen, or we've uh, viewed pornography, or are viewing pornography, we've gossiped or slandered, uh, most of us struggle at one time or another with sinful anger. Many of us have in our hall of shame uh, sexual sin. Some of us have paid for an abortion. Others of us have had an abortion. I mean, the list can go on and on. The fact is, everybody has sinned and violated God's standards. Some time ago, um, I was thinking about this, and I came to the realization that guilt is one of those areas <clears throat> where many Christians have what could be called a fuzzy understanding. In other words, we all have this <clears throat> general understanding <clears throat> excuse me, that guilt has something to do with Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross. Guilt has something to do <clears throat> with the fact that there's a hell. But I've learned, if you take a microphone, stick it in the face of the average Christian and say, would you please tell us what guilt is? All of a sudden, there's a long pause. And um, I had to plead guilty. That was true of me in the past. So I did some research, and here's what I learned. What is guilt? It is a legal and a judicial term that implies criminal responsibility in the eyes of a court of law, whether that court is human or divine. Or another way of putting it is, guilt is liability or culpability to punishment for wrongdoing. Now, if you'll look at those definitions for just a moment and meditate on them, a couple of things should stand out to you. Whenever we talk about guilt, guilt assumes that a standard has been set by somebody in proper authority. And when that standard is violated, then we are guilty. So, for example, if the standard is set by the government and we violate it, we tend to say we broke the law. If the standard has been set by dad and mom, we tend to say we disobeyed. If the standard has been set by God and we violate it, we tend to say we sinned or we transgress, but guilt assumes that a standard has been set by somebody in proper authority and it has been violated. Further, the scripture teaches that we have all done things by nature and by choice that make us guilty before a holy God. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, there is none righteous, no, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 makes it clear the significance of this when it says the wages, wages are what you get for what you've done. The wages of sin <clears throat> is death, both physical and spiritual death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When it says that we've all done things by nature and by choice to make us guilty before a holy God, 
the Bible teaches that all of us come into the world and we are just bent in the direction of disobeying God. We're sinners by nature. Nobody has to teach a child how to lie, cheat, or steal. It's just in them. And the reason it's in them is because kind has produced kind. It was in their parents, too. We are sinners by nature, but even after a child is born, it doesn't take very long for it to start being clear they're a sinner by choice as well. Now, the Bible further teaches that our conscience is an inner witness to spiritual and moral truth. Oftentimes we do things or we're thinking about doing things and in our heart there's something convicting us saying that is wrong. You shouldn't do that. It's like a flashing yellow light inside saying don't do this. It's a warning. But but the problem is our sinful, our, our knowledge of what is good and right has been distorted by sin and that 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 inner conscience that God puts in us can be darkened. In fact, Romans chapter 1 speaks about that. In Romans 1 verse 21 it says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. What was intended to give light can be darkened. And then verse 22 says, professing to be wise, they became fools. That's why it's so important that we keep coming back to the word of God and saying, what does God say is right? What does God say is wrong? Rather than listening to our modern media and the many voices that are telling us what's right and wrong today. Well, further, the Bible teaches that our guilt uh, is a significant issue. And I want you to take away from the, the, the service today this understanding that guilt before God has significant multiple price tags. And I'd like you to see that from your own Bible. Would you grab your Bible and turn with me to Psalm chapter 38? Psalm chapter 38. Now, Psalm chapter 38 is what could be called a psychosomatic uh, psalm. It's one of uh, three or four psalms that talk about the impact of sin on our lives emotionally, the impact of sin on our lives physically, what it does to us physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and so forth. And I want to alert you that Psalm 38 was written by King David, and he's describing his experience of what it was like living with unresolved guilt in the month, maybe a year, year and a half, after he had lusted for Bathsheba, a woman not his wife, had seduced her, committed adultery with her. Later, when he finds out she's pregnant, he takes steps to try to have her husband uh, sleep with her. When that doesn't work, he takes steps to have her husband killed. And the Bible scholars tell us he went for maybe a year, year and a half before he repented of that sin. And Psalm 38 is David telling us what it was like for him living with unresolved guilt. Let let me show you how I've outlined uh, this passage. Here's here's David's testimony. In the first part of verse 2, he talks about internal pain. He says, thine arrows have sunk deep into me. In the last part of verse 2, we talked about spiritual pressure. He says, thy hand has pressed down on me. By the way, folks, remember that one the next time you're talking to somebody and they tell you they just feel like God is against them. Maybe he is. David said when he was living with unresolved guilt, it's just like God was leaning on him. In verse 3, he talks about physical illness. He says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of thine indignation. 
There is no health in my bones because of my sin. In verse 4, he talks about heavy burdens. He says, my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. In verse 5, he talks about worsening circumstances. He says, my wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. In verse 6, he talks about daily sadness. He says, I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. In verse 7, he speaks about general weakness or weakness. He says, my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. And in the first part of verse 8, he talks about a loss of caring. He says, I am benumbed and badly crushed. Now just stop in your, your note taking for a little bit while you're listening and just look at one of the screens, would you? Just look at that list. In our culture, when people describe themselves like this, in our culture, they are usually said to be depressed. Depressed. Now, listen carefully. I understand that there can be different causes for depression, but listen now. If you or somebody you care about feels like this for the same reason, David felt like that because of guilt over sin. Listen to me. If you feel like this for the same reason David did, then any pill you can take today to treat your depression is a shallow treatment of a very deep problem. It is a band-aid when what you need is spiritual surgery. It is treating the symptoms rather than the cause. I'm saying to you again, unresolved guilt has significant, multiple price tags. Now, you look at that, what I want you to think of, notice is this, this is just the first half of what he said guilt did to him. Let's go on, okay? Look at the last part of verse 8. He talks about inward pain or inward agitation. He says, I groan because of the agitation of my heart. In verse 10, he talks about heart palpitations. He says, my heart throbs, my strength fails me. In verse 10b, he speaks of sad eyes. He says, the light of mine eyes, even that has gone far from me. In verse 11, he mentions aloneness. He says, my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand afar off. In verse 12, he talks about feeling threatened. He says, those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they devise treachery all day long. In verse 17, B, he speaks of sorrow. He says, my sorrow is continually before me. And in verse 18, he talks about anxiety. Listen to this statement from a guilty man. He said, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. I'll say it to you one more time. Your sin, your guilt, my sin, my guilt, has significant, multiple price tags. The good news is, God and his word has graciously given us an answer on how to handle our guilt. Let's turn our attention to that. God, let's talk about God's path to a clear conscience. God's path to a clear conscience starts with acknowledging your sin and your guilt to yourself. Acknowledging your sin and your guilt to yourself. 
I want you to see this. Uh, it's in 1 John chapter 1. Would you turn there in your Bible? Uh, 1 John chapter 1, or if you're using an electronic device, you can scroll to that one. We're like the Old Testament people now. We're scrolling to scriptures. Now, uh, for those of you that are not real familiar with the Bible, the book of 1 John, where we're about to read, was written with the express purpose of giving people the assurance of their salvation, the assurance that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. Notice how the writer begins the book with that goal in mind. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says this, This is the message that we have heard from him, and we announce to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now you say, okay, why would a guy who's writing a book that's intended to give people the assurance of, your, of their salvation start like that? His argument is simple. John, right out of the chute, is arguing that one of the ways you can tell that a person is truly born again by the Spirit of God is that he admits he sins. And you think, okay, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is, compare that with our ancestors, Adam and Eve. Remember Genesis chapter 3, after they had eaten from the forbidden fruit, the Bible tells us that after they had disobeyed the standard that God had given them, and later God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve did four things after they had sinned. They ran, they hid, they sowed fig leaves to cover their tracks, and they blame-shifted. And all of us come into the world bent toward handling our sin in the same way our forefathers did. Nobody has to teach a child after they've disobeyed to run, hide, do something to cover your tracks and blame shift. And as we get older, we just become more sophisticated in doing the same thing. And John argues that one of the marks of a person who is truly born again by the Spirit of God is not how much he gives, not how many church services he attends, not how often he reads the Bible, but one of the marks that John starts with by saying is one of the marks of a person who's truly born again is he admits he sins. He owns his responsibility for it. The writer of Proverbs talks about this in Proverbs 28, 13, when he says, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper. That's the tendency of our flesh. God's path to a clear conscience starts with acknowledging to yourself you did wrong. And for some of us, before those words can ever come out of our mouth, we're going to have to say, I did wrong. It wasn't my parents' fault. It wasn't my spouse's fault. It wasn't the lousy teachers I had. It wasn't the environment where I grew up. It wasn't the boss. I did it. It was a reflection of my own heart. The path to a clear conscience starts with owning responsibility for your own sinful thinking, sinful behavior. 
the, the second step to gaining a clear conscience is to confess your sin to God. Now, if your Bible's still open to 1 John, look at the next verse. My guess is with many of you, you've got that verse underlined. 1 John 1, 9 is a favorite. I'd urge you to get it underlined in your Bible, meditate on it, memorize it. The scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now notice, isn't it encouraging that the verse doesn't say, if we sin? I mean, God knows us well enough. That's not the issue. The issue is we are going to sin. The issue is not, are we going to sin? The issue is, are we going to confess our sin? Let me talk to you about that word confess for just a minute. It, it, um, the New Testament was translated from the Greek language, and this was the Greek word homologeo. And it was two words put together to form a new word. <coughs> the homo means one. Legeo was a verb that means to speak. So you put those two words together, homo legeo means to speak one thing. And it, in our Bibles, it's translated confess. And what it means is that when we confess our sins, that we say the same thing about our sin that God in heaven says about our sin. And if you read the Bible much, and you read in the Old Testament, you discover that in the the Old Testament is obvious sin was a really big deal to God because even when Adam and Eve sinned, they're, they're removed from the Garden of Eden, which was a perfect place to live. Then in the, throughout the Old Testament, there's these hundreds and thousands of sheep that are, um, that are sacrificed and their blood poured on the altar as a sin offering. And all of these point toward the ultimate sacrifice for sin, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you that are new to, G to Christianity, the reason we keep talking about Jesus, the reason the, the, the songs we sing are about Jesus is because he was God's perfect lamb. He came to earth, took on the form of a human being. He was God in the flesh, and he lived a perfect life, a sinless life for 30, 33 years, and at the end of that time, he allowed sinful man to nail him to a cross, and as on the cross, <clears throat> he was our substitute. If he'd been a man, he could have just died for one other man, but he was the infinite God-man. He could die for all of mankind. And Jesus Christ was our substitute on the cross, and he paid the penalty for our sin so that God the Father could show mercy to us righteously. That's how big a deal sin is, that God gave his own son to be the payment for our sin. And the word now is, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us. To confess basically means that we come down hard on our sin because God comes down hard on our sin as seen in all the Old Testament sacrifices and as seen particularly in the sacrifice of his, his precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> compare that. C compare that to the way you confessed sin last time. You do that every now and then, don't you? I mean, occasionally, get around to confessing sin. What did your confession sound like last time? I'm, I'm afraid that many of us have developed what could be called an, an oops view of sin. Oops, did it again. Oops, did it again. Oops, did it again. Could Jesus please forgive me? Amen. And it's almost like we think, if I just say the words, I took care of it. I think this may help some of you who would say, you know, Randy, I know I sin, and I've confessed my sin to God, but I still feel guilty. First thing I'd ask you to consider is this. Did you really confess? Did you really confess? I mean, did you own it? Did you come down hard on it? Did you 
Do you view your sin as what put Jesus on the cross? Do you view your sin that without Christ you deserve eternity in hell? Or do you just have an oops, did it again view? John says, if we confess, we come down hard on it. He's faithful and righteous to forgive. The book of Proverbs talks about this when it says this. Proverbs 28, 13. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And oops, view of sin doesn't prompt you to confess, to forsake it. Homo coming down hard on your sin, does prompt you to forsake it. In fact, uh, another passage of scripture, we won't turn to it, but I just encourage you later to write in your, to think about looking at Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is known as the repenter's psalm. It was in Psalm 51 that David talks about what his life was like after he confessed. But Psalm 51 is where he's telling, how he's describing his sin. And he, in verses 1 and 3, he talks about my transgressions. He talks about my iniquity in verses 2 and 4. He talks about my sin in verses 2, 3, and 9. In verse 4, he says, I've done what is evil. And in verse 5, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity. Do you notice that when David repented, when he came down hard on his sin, he's starting to see sin in all its various nuances. Notice the different terms that he's using to describe it. And even that last one, when he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, he is not saying, my mother conceived me out of wedlock. David, when he's coming down hard on his sin, says, I was brought forth in iniquity. What he means is, my problem with sin is a long-term problem. It goes clear back to when I was born. That's what confession looks like. Now, for those of you that have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is what we would call judicial forgiveness. This is what's described in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, when the Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. But I'm saying to you folks, no matter what is in your hall of shame, no matter what is in your past, forgiveness is available to you through Jesus Christ. And his work on the cross of Calvary and his resurrection that proves that what he did satisfied God the Father's righteousness. Now, many of you would say, I've already trusted Christ as my Savior. Then what we're talking about with you when it comes to confession is parental forgiveness. Two verses later in 1 John, the scripture says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What's God's path to a clear conscience? Acknowledge your sin. Own it. Second, confess to God. Come down hard on it. Third, confess to appropriate people. Confess to appropriate people. Uh, Jesus talked about this in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, when he said, If therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way, First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now, if we were to take that teaching and to put it into our 
uh, context, what Jesus is teaching is, if you're in the middle of a church service, like this one, and the offering is being taken, which it'll be here in a little bit, and we all know how important the offering is, right? And I thought I was in a Baptist church. I mean, Baptists usually have that one figured out. I mean, we know how important the offering is, right? All right, good. Jesus says you're in the middle of the worship service, and we're at that point where the offering's being taken, and it is important. But right in the middle of the offering, you remember that somebody's got something against you. Jesus says more important than you finishing the offering, as important as that is. It's even more important that you go get issues settled. Christians are to be the kind of people who are to quick to try to resolve conflict. Confess to appropriate people. Here's another verse that talks about it. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now I've learned as a counselor where I've coached some people and instructed them that they need to go confess their sin to somebody and seek forgiveness. I learned the hard way as a beginning biblical counselor that a person can go with good motives trying to obey the Bible, but without proper training, they can make a very delicate situation worse by mishandling the situation. So I have learned that now when I'm training a person and trying to prepare them to go confess sin to somebody, I give them some terminology to, to use. Here, here's the, some wording I would encourage you to use. Uh, maybe some of you will need to be confessing sin uh, later today and to somebody and asking for forgiveness. I would encourage you to say something like this. God has convicted me of how wrong I was when I fill in the blank and name your sin specifically. When I lied to you, when I stole from you, when I pushed you, um, you know, whatever it was. Uh, <clears throat> God's convicted me of how wrong I was when I name your sin. I know I sin not only against God, but also against you. I've confessed my sin to God and ask his forgiveness. I also want to confess my sin to you and ask your forgiveness. Would you please forgive me? Now look at that uh, statement just a bit, or at your notes. When most people look at that and I ask them, okay, what about that paragraph stands out to you? People mention usually two or three things. Number one, they mention all of the eyes. That's that owning it business. A lot of times people point out the statement, I've confessed my sin to God, because folks mark it down if you have violated a scripture and you've sinned against another person, so there's a need for horizontal forgiveness, then for sure there's a need for vertical forgiveness. You've violated one of God's principles, so you need to start by asking God to forgive you, okay? And then a lot of people uh, point out that statement where I know I sinned against you by, and then where you state your sin explicitly. Listen to me. Don't ever, don't ever go to somebody and say, if I've ever sinned against you, would you please forgive me? Nonsense. That's blatantly unbiblical. When you do that, you are putting responsibility for determining your sin on the other person. It's not their job to determine your sin. It's your job to determine your sin. So God wants you to go to them and say, I know I sinned against you when I did this. Name your own sin. Then a lot of people point out that last line. You see that one? Would you please forgive me? Uh, that's an important one because <clears throat> what I've observed is when you confess sin to somebody, you want a response. Are they going to forgive you or not? And yet we live in a culture where even people in good Bible-believing churches, there's a tendency when somebody confesses sin, there's a tendency to minimize the issue or deflect the question. 
And what I've observed is oftentimes when I've tried to confess sin to somebody, they'll say, hey, listen, Randy, we all have bad days. Still love you, brother. Hey, it's water over the dam. Tomorrow's a new day. Still love you. Uh, You know, none of us are perfect. But they don't answer my question. (laughs) Would you forgive me? And so what I've learned in my own experience and what I train people as I'm sending them out to to seek forgiveness of people is you get ready to ask that question three times. Three shots on goal if that's what it takes. And so you may end up saying to the person after the first time when they don't answer your question, you may say, listen, I wasn't having a bad day. I was having a sinning day. And God's really convicted me about this. Let me just tell you one more time. I've asked God to forgive me for the way I treated you, but I know the way I spoke to you and the sinful anger I manifested was really wrong. Let me ask you one more time. Would you please forgive me? And sometimes you may have to do it three times. And what I've discovered is if three times straight up you admit your sin, three times straight up you ask them to forgive you, even if they don't answer you, I think you'll be able to walk away and say, well, I think I've done what I can do on that one. Now, before I get off that, let me take just a quick rabbit trail. Christians, if somebody comes to you and it appears that they're trying to admit sin and ask your forgiveness. And they may not have it packaged as tight and tidy as that paragraph on the screen right now, but they're trying to confess sin to you. And I, I know one time a, a guy was to me and I had, to, I had to just stop. I was confused. I said, listen, I'm confused. Are you, are you wanting to confess sin to me right now? Maybe ask me to forgive you? Yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do. I said, okay, go ahead. And, um, <laughs> but I was you know, confused about what he was doing. Here's the point I want to make with you, folks. If somebody is trying to confess sin and and they want to ask you to forgive them, answer the question. And for somebody who loves Jesus, when somebody humbles himself and admits their sin to you and asks you to forgive them, for for a godly Christian, the answer is yes. Yes. Not because I'm such a wonderful person, but because I serve such a gracious forgiving God who's forgiven me so much absolutely I'll forgive you confess to appropriate people well let's move on there's a fourth path step to a clear conscience and that is to make restitution make restitution Luke chapter 15 verses 18 and 19 has the prodigal son when he's hit bottom he's going to go talk to his brother excuse me his father and he says I will get up and go to my father and say to him father I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son make me as one of your hired men Uh, he's squandered all the money there's no way he can pay the money back there's no way he could pay back the loss of respect that any father would have experienced to have a son basically say I wish you were dead so I could have your money all he has left at this point with which to make restitution is his body I think that's what's in his heart when he says make me as one of your hired slaves I'll work for you (laughs) that's all I can do He's trying to make restitution. Here's another passage that talks about it. Luke 19, verse 8. The Bible says, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Do you know what Jesus said to discourage him from doing that? Nothing. I have observed that one of the reasons some people would say, I've I know I sinned, I've confessed my sin to God, I've confessed to appropriate people, but I still feel guilty. It's because they haven't made restitution. 
in some cases, it's a whole lot easier to ask God to forgive you, even ask the person to forgive you, than it is to repay them for the loss they experience because of your sin. That's what restitution is. To repay someone for the loss they experienced because of your sin. Well, the last step toward a clear conscience is to change or repent, or we might say manifest repentance by changed thinking and behavior. Repentance is a change of thinking that leads to a change of behavior. Remember that. Repentance is a change of thinking that leads to a change of behavior. The Bible talks about changing our thinking. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But the Bible talks about not just changing our thinking, it talks about changing our behavior as well. Romans 6, 19 says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Change your thinking. Manifest the fruit of repentance, which is change thinking and change behavior. Well, during these minutes, I've tried to help you understand how to gain and maintain a clear conscience. I've tried to show you from the scriptures that unresolved guilt has significant multiple price tags, but by God's graciousness, we can have a clear conscience if we will acknowledge our sin, and then confess it to God, confess to appropriate people, make restitution, and change your thinking and your behavior. Now, regardless of your age, every one of us has a hall of shame. Every one of us has sinned. And all of us have sinned toward others. A lot of us, that's been handled. But some of you may be living today with the, uh, with the lasting results of sinful speech, sinful actions that are broken relationships. And I want to just urge you, regardless of where you're at in your circumstances, to think about this outline and practice it today. Some of you need to make some strategic phone calls this afternoon or plan what you're going to say to a coworker tomorrow. But you can have freedom. You can have a clear conscience. God's told us how. Now, the responsibility is up to you. I exhort you to do that. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray that you would use the preaching and teaching of your word to bring about lasting change in our lives that will bring honor and glory to you. And I pray especially that you'd give courage to those of those who those are here who need to have some hard but godly conversations later today and this week to handle things from the past. In Christ's name, amen.